Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. There's still some prime seats right up front. I don't know why nobody ever takes these ones. Uh, I'm wearing a mask. I can't even spit on you. Um, and some of you are already wondering, is that actually the pastor? Yes. Yes. It, uh, whether, you're, <laughs> whether you're visiting with us or you're a regular attender or a, a faithful member, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to this Resurrection Sunday. You know, I, I like Easter's a nice name, right? But I love to just remember that it's Resurrection Sunday. It's not uh, some holiday where we sell eggs and and, um, rabbits and things like that, but it really is the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And some of you might be wondering why we have the cross right here in the middle of the way. Well, really, the cross should be center to all of our existence. And it is the resurrection that proves that what Jesus did on the cross those many years ago is real. Without the resurrection, Jesus would just be another good man who taught some nice stuff. Without the resurrection, the cross is just a terrible, horrible instrument of torture that none of us would have any appreciation for. Without the resurrection, this would just be an encouraging meeting where I would probably ask for you to each pay $25 to be here. Uh, You know, without the cross, none of this matters. Excuse me, without the resurrection, none of this matters. Without Jesus rising up from the dead. None of this has any account. And so for those of you who maybe don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't understand what we're talking about. Today I want to start with the very most basic thing that you and I must understand when it comes to relationship with God. We've got this little, uh, this little diagram that we use here at the church that helps us remember the, the globe up at the top reminds us that God lovingly created the world and shaped mankind out of the dust of the earth, breathed life into us. And that Adam and Eve, as our forebears, they sinned and they rebelled against God. And since then, each of us has been lovingly knit together in our mother's womb. God has a, a, a desire to know us intimately and for us to be in relationship with him. But like Adam and Eve, we have all rebelled against God. Scripture tells us everyone has sinned, that there isn't any single person that's ever existed apart from Jesus Christ who has not fallen prey to the slavery of sin. And that's what the tree reminds us. Just like Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, each of us has rebelled against God and earned for ourselves death and the wrath of God. Down at the bottom, the empty tomb reminds us that God loved each and every one of us so much that he didn't want to leave us in our state of wrath and rebellion. Instead, he sent his son Jesus, who died on the cross, serving as the substitute on our behalf, absorbing the wrath of God, dying in our place. And God proved it was all true and all applied to everyone who would believe by raising Jesus Christ up from the dead. It was the stamp of approval upon what Jesus did in his life and on the cross, that resurrection morning. God the Father was saying, it's all true. 
And anyone who believes on my son Jesus can be saved and brought into relationship with me. And the heart reminds us that this isn't something that just automatically applies. But each and every one of us must respond. We must either accept the work of Christ and receive him as our Lord and Savior by repenting of our rebellion and our old sinful way of life and coming to him in belief, or we simply don't respond or we choose to reject him. Both have the same consequence that we remain in slavery to sin and under the wrath of God that we have earned in our rebellion against a loving, perfect, holy king of creation. And so that is really the start for everything we're going to talk about the rest of this morning. That's the start of, of the rest of this sermon, is you and I must all make a choice whether we will receive Jesus as our personal king, turning away from our old way of life, understanding he died and rose again for our sin and asks only that we give everything to him in return. And he will renew us. He will save us. If you've never made that decision to follow after Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, and you've got questions, I, I want you to look on the, the back table on your way out. There's two resources for you right out the back. This little track called What is the Gospel? It gives us the information really succinctly. Uh, just nice little explanation to maybe help you understand this better if you don't understand it already. And then there is a book, same title, What is the Gospel? But it goes into more detail for you nerds like me. And I want to encourage you, if you are not certain that you understand what I'm talking about, or you've never made a profession of faith and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you would either come and talk to me or someone else that you believe to be a believer here, or you would grab one of these tracks or one of the books off the back table. And there are also some other books back there that have questions that they answer regarding what it is to follow Jesus in faith. And maybe questions you've got like, should we trust the Bible? And, you know, is, is church meaningful or important? So I want to encourage you not to leave today without seeking those resources out or talking to someone. Now, from here on out, I'm going to be talking mostly to those of you who are believers. You've made that profession of faith. Now, those of you who have not understand what you're going to hear is true. What you're going to hear is is moral truths that you can apply to your life and, and be a better person. But if you are not a believer, you do not have the resources that come through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, namely what we call his, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the power of God to change us. And so if you're not a believer this morning, you're going to hear good stuff, but it may not apply to you in the same way it will to believers. I want to just kind of give that warning this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to the Gospel of Mark. You can find Bibles underneath many of the chairs, uh, or you can open up your Bible app if you've got that and follow along in the sermon notes. Now remember, the Gospel is the good news. And so when Jesus came, he had good news for all of us, good news for all of mankind. And it wasn't just some sort of like hey, here's some nice stuff for you, but it was really an historical announcement, a turning point in all of history. And this is what Jesus has told us about himself, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The whole Gospel of Mark tells us this. 
So as you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, I want you to remember what was last week. Well, it was that triumphal entry, that Palm Sunday, in which Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt, and people threw down their cloaks, and they threw down tree branches in his way. They surrendered and acknowledged him as king. The question for all of us last Sunday was, what do you need to surrender? What do you need to lay down? What do you need to do in your life to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus? Because he really is king over all creation. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, and he is our hope for the future. Scripture also tells us that like he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in the past as king, he will return to Jerusalem once again, but this coming time, he will show himself to be powerful king over all creation and wipe out sin and sadness and destruction. So as you continue looking in your Bible there, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25, we're going to be spending some time with Jesus before his crucifixion. So we're kind of like in a little bit of a time machine and warping back a few days. This is going to occur on the Monday following the triumphal entry. And so Jesus is going to have, or Monday and Tuesday actually, Jesus is going to have a couple of encounters, one with a tree and one with a temple that you and I can learn from and apply to our lives. So let's look first at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, if you will, with me. So Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14 says this. On the following day, so just a quick reminder, that is the day after the triumphal entry. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So we have this first encounter that we're going to look at today, and it's Jesus talking to a tree. And some of you might wonder, what is Jesus doing here? Now, as we look at this story, we, we see some interesting things happening. Jesus is coming up out of Bethany, which is a small town just outside of Jerusalem, and he's walking into Jerusalem past what would have been lots of fig trees and olive trees and just groves of growing food, but it's early in the spring still, and so most of these trees have not begun to produce fruit in the way that would be expected later in the year. And so Jesus coming up out of Bethany, he's hungry, and he goes to this tree that is this fig tree that has its leaves already coming out, and he's looking for food, but then Mark tells us it's not the season for figs. So you might wonder, as did I in researching and studying for this message, what exactly is it that Jesus hopes to eat? I mean, how many of you would go up to a fig tree when you know it's not the time for figs and expect to find a fig? Or how many of you right now would go to one of the apple orchards in the area and expect to find an apple on an apple tree? You wouldn't, would you? That doesn't make any sense. And, and so some of us might, as we read this passage, 
go, what is Jesus looking for? In fact, when Jesus talks to the tree and curses it, essentially, it kind of feels unfair. Because Jesus is going up to a fig tree looking for fruit when it's not time for fruit. And then when he doesn't find fruit, he gets grumpy at the tree. Now, I had to spend a little bit of time because this doesn't sound fair and this doesn't sound right. And I learned something about figs and fig trees. In fact, the kind of person I am and my personality, I spent about half a day researching figs and fig trees. Did you know that we believe that the fig newtons were named after Sir Isaac Newton? Um, and, and they were actually just called Newtons initially. They were not called fig newtons, but they had to clarify because people didn't know what was in them. Um, that's the kind of rabbit hole you can get into when you start researching figs. So I started looking into figs because I want to know why would Jesus go up to a fig tree this time of year, just outside of Jerusalem, and expect to find something to eat when scripture itself tells us that there were no figs because it wasn't the season for figs. Uh, how many of you guys, anybody a fig tree aficionado? Any? Oh, good, so I'm the expert. Um, so whatever I say goes, right? No, so you, you spend a little bit of time reading about figs. And what's really interesting about a fig tree is that they actually produce two crops of figs, at least the variety of fig trees that reside outside Jerusalem. The, the second major crop comes later in the year, and that's the coveted crop. It's the good fruit. It's the stuff that, that um, would be sold in the marketplace. It's the stuff that, that those who were tending the trees would have been looking for. And so when Mark says it's not the season for figs, He's telling us it's too early in the year for the good ones. But what's really interesting about fig trees is that about this time of year, many varieties of fig trees put out small fruit. Today we call them breba fruit. I don't think Jesus would have called them that. But they come out as soon as the leaves start coming out on the fig trees these fig trees start producing little bulbous fruit that become figs. They're, they're actual figs, but they're kind of flavorless traditionally. They, they were not nearly as good even when mature. And it was common for the people keeping the fig trees to simply allow those fruits to mature and fall because they were so undesirable. And because of that, this was also known as the food or the fruit of the peasants and the poor people who were traveling at this time of year. So this tree likely, if it were a normal tree, should have had, as soon as it came to leaf, little bits of fruit on it. Not the good stuff, not the big, juicy, fig newtony kind of fig that we all long for if we like figs, but smaller, less flavorful. And, and this was a common food for peasants, especially those coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And so this is Passover time. Jesus is returning to Jerusalem after his triumphal entry. And so when he sees this fig tree and he's hungry, because it has leaves, 
he expected it to be producing these little breba fruit, these first crop fruits that were reserved for or left for peasants and common people to eat along the road. And so Jesus is not having some sort of unnatural or, or outlandish expectation for this tree. This tree should have little bits of beginning fruit that are perfectly edible, though not super desirable. And so when he walks up to it and sees that it has beautiful, lush leaves, but no fruit, the breba, the first fruits of the year, he realizes that this tree is not going to produce any fruit. Because what's interesting is every fig tree that is in leaf and has not produced these breba fruits, at least this variety of fig tree, it will not produce a main crop that year either. So this tree not only is missing the fruit that should be there, it's first early crop that's not very desirable, but because it's missing that first crop, it will also fail to produce good fruit that year at all. It will not produce a main crop. So Jesus sees in this tree not only a bitter disappointment in the moment, but he knows that this tree that he is talking to will produce nothing. It's beautiful. It's leafy. He has great expectations for it. And yet, it has no fruit. So I want you to kind of hold on to that. I want you to ponder that and think about that as you see that Jesus curses this tree that has no fruit. He says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples hear this. And because the disciples hear it, you and I get to hear it second person. Now let's look at the next encounter that Jesus has. We'll come back to the tree in a little while and resolve that. But first, let's look at verses 15 through 19. And it says this, And they came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus and his disciples, after Jesus finds the tree with no fruit and curses it, they continue into Jerusalem, and they go into the temple. Now, this is just a model of what we believe Herod's temple, or the temple that Herod the Great built in Jerusalem, looked like. And, and it had this huge outer courtyard, and then the temple itself sat in the center, and toward the front, you can see that there's a, a courtyard where a number of things happen. And then there's an inner courtyard around the temple building itself. And then the actual temple where you would go into, or actually the priests only would go into, is the building, the tall building towards the back of those courtyards. And inside that building, 
there was a front room, which was the holy place, and then there was a big curtain and then a back room where when it was still around, the Ark of the Covenant would have resided. And that holy of holies was only entered one time a year by the high priest to bring the offering of atonement for the people of Israel, the blood of, of, of an animal to pay for the price of sin for the, Israel, the nation of Israel. Once a year they did that. And, and so what's going on here is as you get closer and closer to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, fewer and fewer people are allowed. In the great big outer courtyard, everybody's allowed. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, everyone could experience the presence of God. As you got to the next courtyard in, it was reserved for Jewish people, and women were allowed into that next courtyard in. But if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, you were excluded from that next courtyard in. And then there was another doorway, gateway, into which you could, you could be entered. And, and only men, Jewish men, were allowed into that next level. And then into the temple itself, and in certain practices, only priests were allowed. And then into the holiest place, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies at the Ark of the Covenant, only the high priest was allowed, and just one time a year at that. And so when Jesus comes up to the temple, we understand that, that this is an, a very important time going on. This is Passover, that it's bustling. It's lots of stuff going on. People are buying their Passover lambs for their Passover dinner later. There's, there's all kinds of activity here at the temple. And in fact, there's lots of buying and selling going on. And so here's what happens as Jesus encounters this activity. He enters the temple and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Now, you might be wondering, why would people be buying and selling in the temple? Well, when he says in the temple, he's actually talking about in that great big outer courtyard where everyone could come in, called the courtyard of the Gentiles. They would have set up tables, they would have set up shop, and they would have sold items necessary for sacrifices in the temple, for Passover meals, for, for, for the worship of God. So this was not an uncommon practice because... If you were marching, walking for days on end to come to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice, it's bad enough to bring your kids. You wouldn't want to have to bring a goat, a lamb, three doves, and a, a buffalo or a bull, you know, just to get your, your sacrifice. You're going to buy those things there at the temple. So it was actually a valid service that was offered. But what's going on is it's so cram-packed, it's so busy, it's become just another place to sell things like a marketplace. So this courtyard that is supposed to be set apart for the people of the world, for Gentiles to come and worship God, has been turned into nothing more than a marketplace. And, and what's really sad is it was keeping people out. And not only that, but what we find out is that many of these people who were buying and selling were doing so at outrageous rates. And, and there was a practice of uh, money changers who were inside the temple. And if you came to pay your temple tax, once a year, every faithful Jewish male had to pay a temple tax. But he couldn't pay with the coins from just anywhere. There was a specific type of coin he needed to pay with. Because the coins were for, that, that came from the Roman Empire, the, the coins that came from 
the Greeks, they all had pictures of people on them, which was idolatry to the mind of the Jewish people. And so they had to use pure money to pay their temple tax, which is why there were money changers. There were people selling pigeons, which was a, one of the animals used in sacrifice. So all of the stuff that's going on is stuff that is justifiable for the religious, but they've turned it into a business and in turning it into a business, they're excluding people from the presence of God. And this is what upsets Jesus. This is what freaks him out. This is what is so unnerving to him. This is what makes him flip tables. In, a, in another encounter recorded in the Gospel of John, it says he made a whip out of rope and beat the money changers and the people selling things in the temple. And it's like, if you think Jesus is some sort of softy, you don't know the real Jesus because he's the man who went into the temple in Jerusalem and beat people with a rope. That was just a rope, mind you. But still, soft people don't do that. Men and women who are passionate about God do that kind of stuff. So Jesus is going in and he sees that the religious elite have allowed the temple to become a place of commerce, to become a, a pass-through for people looking for a shortcut. So it says he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. There were a couple of gates that entered into Jerusalem through the temple courtyard. And so he was, it became a shortcut, and he was disallowing that. And, and so what we see is that Jesus has this passion for seeing the temple of God preserved as a house of prayer for everyone, that, that he wants to see everyone welcomed into the, the temple of God. Isaiah 56, 7 is what pr the prophecy that says that God's house would become a temple of prayer or a house of prayer for all the nations. And he actually says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. That's from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Isaiah 56, 7 is a prophecy of promise, one that says everyone will be welcome at the temple. Jeremiah 7.11 is a prophecy of condemnation that says, you, religious people, have kept people away from me. And you've actually turned what should be holy into a den of robbers. And so Jesus is, is incensed by this, and he drives out everyone who is defiling the temple, everyone who is keeping others from seeing the presence of God and experiencing God's presence at the temple. He drives them out, and he does it for a while to the extent that the chief priests and the scribes, they heard about it, and they were trying to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. And, and so what, what we see is that these chief priests and these scribes, these religious elite, they were probably making some money on the side from all of this practice. They had some benefit from it. And Jesus has both condemned them spiritually and impacted them physically. You see, when Jesus calls for purity, when he calls for taking a stand, when he says, this isn't how it's supposed to be, but instead we should be holy and pursuing the presence of God, it always costs something. There's always a, a loss involved, and it's always meaningful in the life of those who have to lose it. So what we see is Jesus, first we, we've got a tree, and we've got a temple, and now we're going to return to, believe it or not, the tree. 
So Jesus and his disciples have left Jerusalem, but now verses 20 through 25, they're coming back into Jerusalem. So, and they passed by, or excuse me, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what, the, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus They come back out to the tree, and Peter says, Oh my goodness, that tree that had no fruit, it's dead now. Jesus, your prayer, your your curse, it worked. It's withered all the way to the roots. This tree that had no fruit experienced judgment by Jesus. And Jesus' answer isn't, You know what, Peter? It's because I'm that powerful, I'm that awesome. Instead, he turns it into a teaching moment for his disciples and for us. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. He said, have faith in God. Wait wait a minute, how do we get from a tree with no fruit that you just killed to have faith in God? Well, what's interesting is, is the tree, the fig tree, it's actually a symbol for Israel a symbol for the the practice of worship in Israel. And and while the disciples may not have understood it, Jesus was essentially, in these two encounters with the tree and the temple, he was telling them, I want you to understand something. The time for Israel is past. The time for the temple is coming to a close. But the time where you will be able to encounter God in a unique and special way, it's opening wide up. And I want you to get away from this empty religiosity. I want you to get away from these fruitless lives. And I want you to begin to have relationship with God through me. Have faith in God. And then he he begins to tell them what it will look like. He says, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and likely the mountain he was talking about was one of two, either the Mount of Olives, which would have been just... On his, uh, on his side as they were coming into Jerusalem, or he could have been looking at the Temple Mount, one of the two. It says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. He says, have faith in God, and the person who believes in God will see impossible things happen. This was actually a common phrase that Jewish teachers would use in Jesus' day talking about the power of God and the impossible, moving mountains and casting them into the sea. And he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, a lot of us, we've heard these verses, and we've had people use them in our life to convince us that if we pray for a vehicle, that one that we like, kind of like ordering it at the dealership, that it'll come to pass if we just believe hard enough. If we pray for that perfect spouse, we pray for that perfect home, or we pray for that perfect job, and we just believe hard enough, God will bring those things to pass in our life. But I want you to understand that 
Those kinds of things are not the impossible things. I want you to hear that again. Good cars, big houses, nice jobs, those things are not the impossible things in our lives. Because I, I want to tell you the truth, nearly anyone who works hard enough, pursues things enough, is willing to sacrifice whatever it takes, can achieve those things. Nearly anyone can, can get the things that the false teachers of our day say we should be pursuing in our Christian faith. The things that are genuinely impossible in your life without faith are a relationship with God the Father. The things that are genuinely impossible in your life are things like overcoming sin. Having a good marriage, raising children, period. <laughs> right? We, not even good kids, just not killing them before they leave the home takes faith. We love you. Just sometimes. What are the impossible things in our life? The impossible things are not the things that relate to our wallet or our bank account or our ride or where we live. The impossible things are the things that only God can actually do in our life. And Jesus is saying that you have the opportunity to achieve what the people of Israel have never achieved. Genuine, fruitful lives and representing God in a meaningful way to all the nations. These are the impossible things. Jesus is talking about moving mountains, and i got to tell you, for most of us, it's the impossible thing is moving our rear end out of the couch in the evening. And, and, and being the kind of people we're, we're called to be. And so Jesus says, whatever, I, whatever you ask in prayer and you believe you've received it, it will be yours. And I want to challenge you today, brothers and sisters, that the things we should be praying for are not the things of our culture, but the impossible things in our hearts. Lord, help me to overcome lust. Father, help me to overcome the greed. I believe that I no longer have to be greedy. Help me to overcome my covetousness and my heart of condemnation against others who don't look, talk, or live like me. Those are the impossible things. These are the mountains that Jesus says we should be moving by faith. I want you to think for just a second, what is the most impossible thing in your life today? And I'm not talking about a job, and I'm not talking about a car, and I'm not talking about the temporal things that will pass away, but what's the, the really meaningful choice that you are struggling to make in response to Jesus Christ that seems impossible today, and you need his help? I want to challenge you to pursue it by faith. Jesus goes on to teach Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Two things are key to being a fruitful Christian who represents God well. Faith and forgiveness. Believing that God can use somebody like, like me, like you, 
and then walking around and not holding grudges anymore. It says if, if you have anything against anyone, do you know how broad that is? I mean, if, if we were to take it and apply it literally, there's a guy in a truck that cut me off that I should probably try and find to forgive. Or maybe I can forgive him in the moment when it happens and start trying to practice a lifestyle of forgiveness. I don't think it was you, Don. Um, it was an, yeah, it, it was another Old Dominion driver. Um, Okay. <laughs> Faith and forgiveness. And it brings us back to these two places, these two interactions that Jesus had. This fruitless fig tree that he cursed and it withered, and this faithless temple that he judges and abandons. In about 40 years, this temple, this beautiful, beautiful temple, with this amazing courtyard and and it believed to have gold inlaid all over the place and stone upon stone and cedar, just fragrant cedar inside. A beautiful, breathtaking temple dedicated to God about 40 years after Jesus comes and lives and dies and rises again. It's destroyed utterly. The Romans in AD 70 burn it to the ground and then it tells us, history tells us that they took and they pulled up all of the stones in the courtyard so that they could get the gold that melted when they burned the temple down. And they wanted everyone to know that this was a false god in their view and that this place would never stand again. Thankfully, Jesus, 40 years prior, had said, this temple isn't what matters. You'll encounter God personally and face to face in the coming years. So this faithless fig tree, excuse me, this fruitless fig tree and this faithless temple that Jesus interacts with. He curses one and he judges and abandons the other. And I want you, as we work to bring it home this morning, to understand some things. When we look at scripture, you and I, nowadays, we're the tree. You're the tree. I'm the tree. We are the tree in this story. Jesus himself, in talking about false prophets or people who come declaring themselves to be his, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You and I, we are all trees in this life. And we are all producing some sort of fruit or maybe kind of no fruit at all. And it is by our fruit that we will be known. We are the tree that Jesus encounters. Will we be the trees that he blesses and, and partakes of and, and rejoices in? Or will we be trees where he is utterly disappointed because he finds on us nothing worth consuming? Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 says this about us. Now the works or the fruit of the flesh are evident. In other words, if you're the kind of tree that isn't following after Jesus, whose life is not dedicated to him, this is what you'll see as the fruit in your life. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and just in case you don't see something that you've fallen prey to in the list, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The tree that produces fruit like this will be cursed and will wither and will be destroyed. Galatians goes on to tell us, verses 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God, who has believed on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the things that will come out of their life, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You're the tree in this story. When we apply it to our life today, what fruit are you producing? And will you be a tree that Jesus rejoices in encountering or one that he curses and one that is allowed to wither and be cast into eternal destruction. Guess what? It's also true that we are the temple. You're the tree. Individually, we are trees in a great big orchard. What kind of fruit are we producing? But together, we are the temple. Both as individuals, here's what the Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, so you were bought with a price. Or excuse me, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are the temple of God together. You as an individual are a temple for God. What are you keeping in the courtyard? What are you allowing to surround you? We're supposed to be glorifying God with who we are as the temple with our bodies. What are you filling your courtyard with? Are you drawing people to the Spirit of God within you, or are you pushing them away with the things that you bring into your life? 1 Peter 2.5 says this about us. You, talking to the church, you plural, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple for God, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to tell us in this letter to the churches that we are supposed to be representing God as his temple, that people should encounter him in our presence. We are the temple. Brothers and sisters, I have a question. What is it that fills our outer courts? When people come into our presence, first of all, what kind of fruit will they see? And second of all, what, what kinds of things are we surrounding ourselves with? When they come into our presence and, and the Spirit of God within us is crying out to interact with them, are they going to encounter politics? Is our courtyard so full of politics that we have no room for God? Is it so full of Netflix or TikTok or any other number of things you can find on your phone or computer? Is it so full of work or bank statements or hatred towards someone else that you are keeping people from experiencing the presence of God? What are you filling 
your outer courts with. You see, when you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives within you. Are you inviting people into his presence within you? Or are you filling your life so full of nonsense that you keep them away? Shelly and I were talking. Shelly's my wife, for those of you who don't know. She's the hot one up front. And, um, Sorry, that's always awkward. We, we, were, we sat under a pastor who was always talking about his hot wife. And um, that can be kind of awkward, isn't it? So please forgive me if that was awkward for anyone. Uh, yeah, I just, well, I needed to say it because it was true. <laughs> so where was I going? Oh, we were talking. We were talking. We do that because we're married. If you're married and you don't talk, you should consider it. Um, but we were talking, and, and it kind of made us sad to think that potentially, and this is not a thought of condemnation, but there are people who come to church, and they never talk about God outside of this building. That, that you don't pray, potentially, in, in any, other, any other circumstance except maybe a meal, because you were taught to do that so you won't choke and die. And, and I'm not talking about having to go out and be a street preacher. Don't, don't hear that. But that we have choked our outer courts with so much worthless stuff that we don't even take the time any given day to recognize the Spirit of God within us as Christians. So the, the challenge for us, for you, is, is to to get rid of some of the garbage and invite people in to experience God's presence as you begin to share what he's doing in you and through you. To make your faith more than just a Sunday morning experience, but a everyday experience. As you look at your fruit, as you examine what's in your temple, courts, I want you to be believers. I want you to be fruitful and faithful. For those of you who have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to understand you can live good lives. You can be good people, in quotes. <laughs> but you will never really know what it is to be fruitful and faithful and to have full purpose and meaning in your life until you repent of your sin, turn away from your life of rebellion against God, Trust in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sin and believe on him as your king. And when you do that, you will be genuinely fruitful and faithful. Everyone today, I want to leave you with this word of encouragement. Have faith in God. Listen, you might be struggling with a besetting sin, with a sin that feels like it has got you locked up for the rest of your life. It's time for you to have faith in God and say to that mountain, be moved and believe that it can be moved. It's time. The cross paid the price. The resurrection shows God has the power. Now believe. And begin to produce fruit that's, that looks like a believer in your life as you trust God and you pray that you would begin to trust him to move the mountains of sin and selfishness and fruitlessness and then to daily live a life of welcoming forgiveness toward others aware of the unsaved in your life and inviting them to experience 
the Spirit of God that's within you. Not because you're something special, but because He's amazing. Have faith in God, church family. Have faith in God. Today we have the privilege as we close out our time together of partaking of the Lord's Supper. Jay, would you mind coming and, and um, just giving us some mood music? Uh, I won't even pick the key, you know, just uh, give us something. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, though. And, and, and what this is, is as we partake of bread and juice, we declare we have faith in God. We believe the story of the sacrifice and that it's not some fairy tale, but that it's history and that it applies to us. So as we prepare to, to partake of communion this morning, it's a little weird. I'm always trying to figure out this COVID thing. And, and um, you know, there's always the old school way of, well, we pass plates and give it to you. And then there's the come up here and get it. And we just struggled to figure it out. So here's what we got this morning. I want to ask everybody who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and seeks to celebrate the sacrifice that was made for them to, to come up the aisles on the outside and take your elements and then return to your seats through the center aisle. If you don't want to interact with a crowd, I'll bring you something. I'll bring it to you right where you sit. Just kind of raise your hand and to save and use a thing like this he wants to save and use a beautiful person like you so I invite you to come and partake or raise your hand and I'll bring it to you if you're downstairs right now there's a, a, a container over by the kitchen silver has a cross on the top you open that up you'll find the elements and, and what it is is these are prepackaged this morning just to explain it and it's funny we got to go through a how-to on communion bread's on the bottom on the top. After we have all gotten our elements and returned to our seats, we will partake together, all together at the same time. So if you would like to participate in the Lord's table today, celebrating the sacrifice of the body and the blood of Christ, and you have trusted him as your savior, I want to invite you to come up the side aisles, keep distance as you can, receive the elements and return to your seats. And if you would like me to bring it to you, simply raise your hand and I Let's get our elements, return to our seats, so we can partake of communion.
open your wafer on the bottom there. Scripture tells us that on the same night that he was betrayed, Jesus in a meal with his disciples took bread and he broke it and blessed it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body. And what, what we understand is that his body represents all of the physical suffering that he underwent for us. How he paid the price for sin by living a perfect life and dying on the cross. He said to them, this is my body. I want you to take and eat it and every time you do, do it in remembrance. with me if you would. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this morning we would be both faithful and fruitful, fruitful and faithful, that we would be believers who would have lives that show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And that we would be faithful in inviting others into your presence and speaking your name in all that we do. This morning, for anyone who understands the cross and the resurrection, but has not trusted you as their Savior, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would just right now, even in this very moment as I speak, lay a burden upon their heart that they would feel a sensation that is undeniably you telling them that it's time to repent and believe. And I pray that they would be bold enough to just talk to whomever invited them or whoever they're here with or even to come and find me after the service and say, help me to know Jesus more course, it's as simple as praying a prayer that confesses our sinfulness and accepts you. And so this morning, we pray that. Bless the remainder of Resurrection Sunday. Help us to celebrate. Whether we're eating ham or finding excuses, may we always
let's go out in an attitude of praise and thanksgiving. So clap, dance, whatever you want to do with this last song.
guys depart this morning, I want to encourage you to be fruitful and faithful. And if you've never trusted Jesus, today is the day to choose to follow after the man who was completely God, who lived a perfect life and died on a cross for your sins and then rose again to prove it's all true. So we got some great stuff going on this week. Card ministry will be tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m. downstairs in the women's ministry room. Women's ministry will be meeting Wednesday. They're starting a new study on patience. So see Marlene because it's new books. Uh, chosen fifth and sixth grade will be meeting this week in the fellowship hall. Men's breakfast is coming Saturday, 8 a.m. Uh, we'll be working around some birthday party decorations, but we're going to have a breakfast. So look forward to seeing all of you. In addition to our normal stuff going on, some Bible studies tomorrow night, youth ministry Thursday night at 6.30, and then Sunday school next week. We continue to celebrate the Christ, the one who has called us to fruitfulness and God bless you. Dancing